happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 248 for February the 9th, 2022. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am coming to you with a new haircut from Oklahoma City, where for about three more months or four, four, three more. Um, I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, which effectively means I teach media literacy to fifth and sixth graders. And we finished our third trimester, second trimester today. <clears throat> and I also get to do some instructional coaching with our teachers. I am joined as always by Dr. Jason Neifer, who had to tap into the probably 50 or 60 devices that he could have selected. If you've ever seen, what is that? Is, is it like um, uh, the, um, oh gosh, this is a great introduction, isn't it? Um, <laughs> the Matrix, when they're getting weapons, is that in like Matrix 2? There's like this vast trove and you're just able to select it. Folks, that's probably what the closet looks like at Dr. Niver's house. So anyway, thank you, Jason, for joining. And I'm glad that you could find another device that would work. Yes, yeah. I uh, weirdly got uh, uh, kind of locked out of everything on my Mac, which I'm not entirely sure why uh, uh, I had an update installed. It signed me out of everything. And then also I lack uh, camera and microphone access. So not great for podcasting. But here I am. I was able to quickly acquire another device in the archives so I could be here. Um, but I am the assistant. I'm, I'm sorry. It was my old title. I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in kind of spring like. We call it full spring because it's not spring yet, but it's been in the 40s and 50s this week. So it's been very nice weather here. Um, but uh, I don't think we're here to talk about the weather. And I also want to know you got a haircut. I did not get a haircut. So I'm still sporting my uh, long, great locks uh, as, as part of my, my new mystique. But I don't think we're here to talk about hair either. What is the ethic situation room, Dr. Fryer? Actually, I was going to just redo our whole show and it was all going to be fashion. So fashion, <laughs> fashion, fashion and, and hair. hair. So, yeah. yeah. No, we are uh, usually talking about just the past week's tech news. But since some winter weather intervened <clears throat> and, uh, Cause my wife and I had to need to depart a day earlier for the NASA Space Exploration Educators Conference in Houston, Texas. Um, we're going to talk about two weeks worth of tech news. And generally, our links that you can find at edtechsr.com slash links are a bit overwhelming. And whenever we happen to miss a week, as we sometimes do, uh, they kind of get longer. So I can guarantee 100% we are not going to talk about all these topics. But... We have categorized them into the following categories, Microsoft, Apple, Tech Correction, Google, Security, Media Literacy, Privacy, and Miscellaneous. And, of course, we'll have some Geeks of the Week to finish it off. So, Dr. Neifer, after a two-week hiatus, where would you like to start? Well, let's do some hard tech news to start off with, some updates from our friends at Microsoft, Apple, and Google. Let's start with Apple News. Um, Macworld reported on February 8th that basically every Mac is going to be updated to an M2, M2 chip in 2022. And um, uh, the article itself seems to, to be speaking from some authority. I've also seen a couple of the prominent uh, Apple YouTubers talking about how they expect a lot of refreshes, but uh, every or a lot of refreshes this coming year. But the, um, uh, the Mac Mini which is something I'm using at home. It's an incredible bargain. I think I paid $700 for it, um, but is a, a wonderful desktop computer, uh, is likely to be updated into a new version with an M2 chip, uh, the MacBook Air, uh, the MacBook Pro, and perhaps even the newer uh, MacBook Pros, which came out in 2021, may also be updated. Um, I also uh, want to note that there's some suspicion that uh, the Mac Pro may be updated uh, uh, with the M1 chip. And it, it's pretty, it, it's, I think it's pretty good news that they're headed in that direction. I would hate for them to sit on the M1 chip for two or three years. I'm assuming that they had the plans for the M2 chip pretty much uh, in, you know, uh, uh, in, in the lab uh, when they introduced the M1 chip, because that's, that's how far Apple tends to look into the future of their development of products. But I think it's, it's, it's really good news. I am hoping that Apple uh, does right by consumers in that 
They continue to have a relatively inexpensive option. Uh, the MacBook Air M1, which is an extraordinary value at $1,000, would still be my recommendation for most users that are looking for a good uh, a, a personal portable laptop. Um, I would also recommend the Mac Mini um, uh, in, in the same way. And to be honest, um, you know, I don't, uh, especially if you're not doing something like high-end video editing, I think the Mac Mini and the MacBook Air are both enough to, uh, for even power users uh, uh, like, like myself and Dr. Fryer. So um, I, I think that's, that's, that's good news. And I look forward to seeing these new um uh, uh, these new uh, devices uh, later this year. So tied to that, I dropped an Apple, Apple article in there from Ars Technica on the 7th of February <clears throat> report. Apple will introduce new iPhone iPad on March 8th. And this article also suggests that some of the rumor sites are saying MacBook Air uh, update first. This is a little earlier than normal for the Apple event, which we're of course, you know, used to. Um, one of the things it also mentions, and this will affect everybody, not just folks that might want to buy a new iPhone, <clears throat> iOS 15.4 is allegedly going to be dropping in the first part of March. That will allow folks to log in with facial ID wearing a mask. Now, the irony of that is we're kind of, in some contexts, you know, shifting. It's interesting what, you know, governors are doing and the federal government still sticking with CDC and saying not yet, <clears throat> but uh, our school has gone to back to mask optional. And so anyway, uh, some updates coming in kind of the typical, you know, um, Apple event. Um, but you know, as we see these things year over year, <laughs> you know, you just end up with a phenomenal device. And, uh, as we anticipate some job and geography changes for our family in the summer, um, there's probably going to be some device purchases that'll be coming up as well. And I'm hopeful that that, especially MacBook Air will, will come out in the spring. That may be a college laptop for a young high school senior in our family. And <clears throat> we may need to, may need to get at least one other one. So anyway, maybe the price will be cut dramatically, but it's probably going to stay around a thousand dollars. It is still just a tremendous value, especially when you consider how long these things last. Yep. Absolutely. What else, Dr. Knifer? Well, let's uh, go ahead and do a quick piece of uh, Microsoft news, and then we'll jump to some Google stuff um, about Chromebooks, which is uh, Kevin Tofel's uh, uh, Chromebook blog uh, wrote an interesting article about the Microsoft Surface Laptop SE, which we reported on a couple of weeks back, and, and, and I'll admit I was mostly with a mocking tone at the time, in part because uh, there seems to be an article about every eight months about the Chromebook killer from Microsoft. But what I like about this analysis, and um, Kevin is, is, a, is a great journalist, tech journalist. He also um, uh, is an authority on, on Chrome operating system. And so when he looks at it, I tend to add a little bit more of a little more trust to it because he is a believer in, in the Chrome operating system. And so when he says something is legitimate, that, that gives it a little bit of credibility, uh, to me. But, uh, he did, um, uh, 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 check out, um, or has been uh, researching into, uh, the, these new Microsoft Surface laptops. And his general report is that it's, uh, it's, they're, they're pretty good. Uh, it's very Chrome OS in its simplicity in that, uh, it is limited in what you can install, um, on the device. They are mo more manageable, which is part of the point. Um, of the Chrome operating system for schools, but he makes an important point that you can't buy one right now unless you are a school because they're only available in bulk purchases uh, to schools at this point. So I can't imagine that a Google uh, institution uh, would adopt one of these devices. It just doesn't make any sense to do so because you'd have to adopt the infrastructure that comes with it. But if you are in a Microsoft district already and you're looking for a Chrome uh, OS-like experience that's easily, or at least more easily manageable than uh, Windows laptops, this is a good option. So um, uh, it's a pretty good review. It talks about how it's probably good enough um, and adopts some of the simplicity of the Chrome OS operating system. One of the things he points out in that article, though, is that without having any other apps running, this Windows uh, SE platform is still using five gigs and I think the fact wow. that Microsoft is not, you know, running a completely redesigned OS from scratch, which is really what 
you know, Chrome OS represents and what I think we need for security today. Um, I just, I'm, I'm not making that recommendation to, to any schools, but if you're heavily invested in the, in the windows architecture and there's some schools out there that are, then perhaps it's worth looking at. Um, but I think it'll, it'll take a lot for schools that have drank the Google Kool-Aid and are in Google apps, Google workspace, Chromebooks. I, I, I don't foresee that being, being changed anytime soon. Um, it's just weird. It's kind of the way we used to be with, with Microsoft and, you know, Office and, and Windows systems or Novell clients. Who remembers having to be tethered to the Novell client? Um, so anyway, but again, good to see Microsoft competing. I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal for most schools at this point. Yep, absolutely. And let's do, actually, there's, there's a decent amount of Google news. Uh, uh, interesting article from 9 to 5 Google uh, today that Luma Fusion, which is a popular iOS uh, video editing suite, is coming to Android, and they kind of actually buried the lead to me, for me. It's coming to Android and the Chrome OS operating system via Android app, and I've not used Luma F uh, Fusion. Um, I did read a couple of reviews today based on, on this, but it seems like it might uh, kind of answer that 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 age-old question of finding a good video editor for Chrome OS. Right now, I keep expecting web-based uh, uh, video editors, I keep thinking of WeVideo as an alternative here, is a, pr is a pretty good a pretty good alternative to some of the desktop apps. But um, if you do a lot of video editing or you need something that's not fussy, um, and unfortunately every web-based video editor I've used is a little fussy and, and not necessarily as user-intuitive as iMovie or I also think Camtation Studio is pretty intuitive once you get over a couple of humps. Um, that uh, uh, could be a real possibility. And I would agree with some uh, Chrome operating system critics, that is a, a, a glaring absence on the Chrome operating system is a, a, a viable uh, uh, industrial solution to video editing. So I thought that was a, a, an interesting uh, update. Couple shout outs. Uh, we're using what was Adobe Spark. It's now called Adobe Creative Cloud Express. And my sixth graders have just produce videos that we've been watching today and tomorrow. Uh, one of my students went ahead and asked to use WeVideo, and I learned, I can't believe I didn't know this, that our school had purchased WeVideo Pro accounts for these kids, and they've had it since October. I definitely agree with you that it's an essential part of what we need to produce media and, and share media today. Um, if your school's not already having conversations about digital curriculum, what to purchase for next year, like the spring is a great time to do that. And these are conversations that many schools may not have had. You've got some piecemeal things and teachers using free tools. Hey, maybe you are light years ahead of a lot of other schools and you guys already do this and, and have great conversations and figure out how those things get paid for. But we tend uh, to, you know, have Minecraft and also now we video. Um, but yeah, I'd be interested to see what else can be provided. Cause this is one of those cases where there aren't free tools that can provide the function that you need. And I definitely think it's worth paying for. I think you, we video is like three bucks a kid or something like that per user. Um, of course that's what everybody wants, right? Is a per user subscription, but that's good. And, uh, might be worth checking out, especially when you look at, uh, both not only function, but cost on, in terms of licensing. And related to that, a couple of kind of Chrome OS updates in general. Chrome Unbox reported on February 1st that uh, there were some statistics released the week before, which suggested an amazing decrease uh, uh, in the number of Chromebooks shipped between quarter four 2021 and quarter four 2020. And of course, uh, the Chrome OS haters out there immediately jumped in to say it, it shows that, that this doesn't have any staying power and uh, uh, that the Chrome OS is dying and, and yada, yada, yada. And they go through a pretty good uh, set of reasons why that that's ultimately not the case. But particularly from the educational standpoint, just remember that an awful lot of devices were purchased in 2020 in order to give kids uh, access in both emergency remote learning and then later that fall, um, uh, more purposeful remote learning as the pandemic became a, a more of a long-term thing. And um, there's just less of a market now because it's been filled already by, by Chrome devices. 
The other thing I would also note, and this this was uh, it, it kind of lightly touched on 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 uh, uh, supply chain issues, but I've heard another a number of other articles that are actually related to automobiles. But with the shortage right now in electronic components around the world, a lot of manufacturers are just not. Uh, manufacturing the cheap versions of their stuff. And that's particularly true of automobiles, uh, that the the lack of uh, new automobiles in the marketplace because of the uh, extraordinary supply shortages have been really uh, problematic uh, from the standpoint of um, um, uh, of, of, of buying a car if you're in the market for one, but th- it's also been noted that the used car market is also increasing dramatically in price because reasonably priced cars, the, the, the people, uh, people that, that need a reasonable priced car and can't afford $40,000 for a new automobile, um, they're buying up used cars because auto manufacturers are going towards their high profit autos. That's high end luxury automobiles. And I think that this, the same can also be said true of, of technology as well. Then in a lot of cases, yes, there's premium materials that go into expensive electronics, but at the same time, there's certain core electronics that, that appear in every laptop. So why put that in a $179 Chromebook when you can put that in a $1,179 Windows laptop? So I think that that's a factor here too, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, Chrome OS isn't going away is, is the headline there. Uh, I dropped in a, a Google-related article. Uh, it's not Chrome-related, but it's from um, the YouTube CEO. So this is from Hollywood Reporter, which this may be the first time to cite them, but this was from January 25th. <clears throat> More creators are making at least $10,000 a year on YouTube. Uh, this is from Susan Wojcicki. Um, that is a 40% year-over-year increase uh, in the channels, making more than $10,000. Um, and on a personal note, I'll say... Um, I continue to just publish a eclectic, you know, set of stuff, but some of them are cooking videos and other things. And, you know, it, it's varying, but you know, Google or YouTube is sending me a check for about 50 to a hundred dollars a month. Um, some of these are just because I don't know, it's, it's so interesting to track the analytics and I wonder if anybody's doing educational research out there. There's a few people doing that. I wonder how many teachers today, classroom teachers, pre-K-12, have a YouTube channel themselves. And I think as media literacy teachers or folks who are teaching about technology, hugely important to play with media, hugely important to be learning about the creation and sharing of of media content to include videos. It is just fascinating to see the kind of data that you have access to in the YouTube portal and to have live data. And so anyway, that's... um, it's probably a great workshop idea for a conference or something is just kind of all of the layers of, uh, you know, data and learning and insight that we have and the ways that YouTube creators, you know, are encouraged to use that data um, to increase engagement and benefit themselves financially, but also, you know, benefit the platform. So. And a couple other quick notes. Um, this one's just a silly one because we mentioned in the past. Uh, uh, the Pixel 3, three-year-old smartphone, got its class update from Google um, uh, this week. Actually, I think it was today because I saw a couple other headlines based on this. And Google still keeps talking about how three years of update is just such a great experience uh, for its users. And I have to say, I don't dislike Android by any stretch of the imagination. I still like playing with Android, and I could still easily use this my my operating system uh, on a telephone. But holy dog, am I... I just bewildered why they think that's okay. Like, I, you know, I at least at least have a little shame about it, right? That, um, and, and when we talk about not getting updates, it's we're not just talking about operating system updates. We're talking about security updates, which has been something that, that Google's worked on a, a lot in the last four or five years. It's the reason why there's a regular security update on a lot of phones. But if you're buying a phone and stops getting a new phone, it stops getting updates if you're one of the lesser uh, updatey uh, uh, OEMs, then that's a real problem, I think. And, and I think that's a bizarre strategy that they're using. And Apple's clearly beating them um, uh, 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 in the marketplace when it comes to providing security updates. And uh, that is a Jedi mind trick fail, basically. They're yeah. like, oh, three years is all you need. That, no, I don't think anyone's buying it. And then um, I there was a uh, 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 Samsung event today where they announced the new S22 um, Samsung phones. Um, uh, I don't uh, care as much about that, but I did notice that there was a, a super interesting 
uh, released today. Um, there's a new Galaxy Tab S8 Ultra tablet that is a 14-inch uh, a tablet, a 14-inch tablet with a keyboard. It's got a 2960 by 1848 uh, pixel resolution screen, a super AMOLED screen. So big, beautiful screen. That's too big, too big, <laughs> two inches. <laughs> Apparently, the both of us West are struggling with the words tonight, but um, it's two inches bigger than the largest iPad Pro. Um, but the thing I keep thinking about, I mean, that would be a wonderful uh, device, I think, to take notes on. It'd be a wonderful device, um, to, um, uh, uh, to watch media on. But I still think the tablet experience in general is just not a productivity experience with the Android or, for that matter, the iOS operating systems. I have one thing to add to that. Our son, uh, recently parted with his laptop and got a brand new Mac Pro. Uh, with the keyboard and everything, and um, he loves it. And I think he has maybe four other computers that he uses for work that are all Linux and Windows-based. Um, but he's really enjoying it and finding that it's doing everything that he needs. Now, he's not he's not producing media at this point, I don't think. It's, you know, email and, and games and, um, you know, consuming media. But, uh, you know, Apple continues to work on that, and that's been the dream for a long time, <clears throat> even for schools, to say, hey, you know, the iPad is, is, is all you need. So for most folks, though, that are doing some hard, any, any kind of, of serious media production, um, generally you're finding that the, that the tablet is coming up short. So. Yep, totally makes sense. And then... Let's see here. Oh, then uh, Chrome OS 98 is is being pushed out right now to a variety of um, uh, uh, Chrome OS devices. Uh, there are a couple of interesting new features uh, that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, probably the the most interesting one is that they they keep evolving the uh, screen capture tool. And so now instead of it automatically going to the downloads folder, you can actually select a folder where your screen captures go to. And I have to say, like, and, and to be clear, I'm mostly back on Mac OS, but I still use Chromebooks quite a bit. And in fact, my my uh, carry around laptop is, is still, um, I have a, a, a four-year-old uh, used Chromebook that is pretty beat up, but I bought it beat up for a reason because I wanted to be able to just carry it around with me with all my stickers on it. But the uh i i it's becoming very elegant to do a lot of the integrated things um on that particular operating system we so puppy i think that is the best upgrade that's happened to chrome in a long time uh for the last couple of years i taught my students how to use screencast screencastify um and there's just lots of clicks in it and it works and it's good but to have that built in it, it's just absolutely phenomenal. And screencasting, I'm 100% convinced, is one of these skills that everybody needs. Teachers, students, everybody needs to know how to use a screencast and make one and, and be able to share it. So kudos to, to Google for doing that. They may not have the video editing platform as we were talking about earlier, <clears throat> but enhancing the screencasting and maybe some of this will come, right? Um, even with QuickTime and what you see Apple being able to let us do with basic, yeah. some basic trims and, and uh, things that you can do with QuickTime, uh, maybe Google is going to enhance some of what they are doing, you know, via their screen, screen capture tool. Yep. Okay, I think, did we get through all the tech, 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 tech news? You got through all the Google, all the, app, all the Apple and all the Microsoft, so cool. Well, there we go. Well, uh, should we should we jump into the abyss that is the tech correction? You know, let me jump down real quick to get a couple others that are just kind of sure. a, a little random. Uh, this is under the um, well. Let's go to the privacy uh, headline, and these can go into different categories. But this is from the Verge today on February ninth. Uh, lawmakers call on feds to drop Clearview AI facial recognition. I've got actually a couple facial recognition ones. Uh, so there are uh, contracts that. Uh, clear that federal agencies have with Clearview. We've talked about this before in the past. It's basically an illegal service. They have web scraped tons and tons of uh, content from different places, um, apparently in violation of, of user agreements and whatever, you know, legalese, but, but uh, contracts. And we have 
not, I don't think, a huge number, but a growing number of voices really speaking out against uh, artificial intelligence, especially because of the ways that is very biased and uh, leads to misidentification. But I mean, to hear law enforcement talk about it, it is like an incredible dream that you can literally just put, you know, any kind of picture in there. And within a few seconds, you're going to have, you know, an identification uh, because it is just such an expansive uh, database. So Pentagon Department of Justice, they have active contracts. And so there's four lawyers, uh, Marky Merkley, uh, Jay Powell, and Presley from Massachusetts, Oregon, Washington, and Massachusetts um, have sent some letters to the federal agencies calling for them to end the use of that technology. And then on the AI, or yeah, it is AI, but it's the, the AI and facial recognition front, this is significant. Uh, the last time we were together, I think two weeks ago, uh, we had an article mentioning that the IRS was going to start requiring selfies. Well, guess what? They have backed off of that. According to Ars Technica, on February 7th, IRS stops requiring selfies after facial recognition system is widely panned. So here's a great example of how tech journalism and just journalism more generally and Folks sharing and speaking out on social media can have an impact. Um, there were some, you know, articles I read about, you know, this company. I was it was called ID, uh, me, yeah, ID dot me. Um, and anyway, uh, it was it was very um, it was met with a lot of opposition, and so the IRS has backed off of that. And that that was a really kind of eye opening thing, like really? We're really going there? I mean, it seems like we're on a trajectory where, yes, everybody's biometric information is going to be, you know, part of a government database, and we're all going to basically potentially exist in the same, similar kind of environment almost to what China and Hong Kong and, and those areas do. But I thought that was a positive article on the, the topic of privacy. Um, and then one more, why not? Why not finish off the category? Uh, this was Ars Technica also on February 7th. Health sites let ads track visitors without telling them. Uh, this links to a great article that Jason shared last week. In fact, I finally published the episode tonight, right before the show, um, about Flock, which Flock was an attempt by Google to have some new way of tracking people for advertisement purposes that wasn't going to involve third-party cookies. Because part of what has happened is we have these third-party companies that were pretty opaque to us, and they've made all these different connections between sites and, and our browser history and all this kind of stuff. Um, so um, this was this article um, by Lily Hay Newman for Wired is saying that Digital ads um, are, um, you know, are tracking us, basically, which is, you know, just part of the of the surveillance capitalism economy. Um, Peggy is saying in the show note or in the chat here that the IRS hasn't completely abandoned it. They've just delayed it during tax filing season. So, OK, yeah, that is a good, good thing to point out. But I would say we still need to, you know, I think we need to make up our minds what our opinion is about facial recognition in its current iteration and then put that on our agenda of things that we're going to advocate either for or against. It's really a big deal. And, you know, kind of once we've stepped further into that world, it's really hard to backtrack. So anyway, several different updates on the privacy front. Okay, shall we do, well, would you prefer security or tech correction? Um, I would just say security since tech correction will easily suck the rest of the <laughs> time, so. Yeah. Okay, well, um, uh, interesting article from CNET yesterday. Uh, Google touts that Google account hacks dropped 50% for the 150 million who got two-factor authentication. That is and great. Uh, uh, we talked about two-factor authentication, sometimes known as 2FA, uh, uh, several times in the past. It's an easy thing to do. It does add a bit of potential inconvenience uh, because you have to have a mobile device with you to sign in to your account. If you haven't signed in for a while or it's the first time you're signing into the account, but provides um, a, a lot of pretty strict security for you because it means you'd have to have access to your physical device 
or a backup code to get into an account, especially on a new device. And um, uh, yes, this does come from Google, and yes, it's touting its own efforts to push people towards 2FA, but still, I'm honestly surprised that number's not higher, uh, because I would be curious to find out what the other 50% of the hacks actually look like. But uh, use two-factor authentication if you can, is the summary there. Absolutely. Um, actually, I, I hope it'll be published on the TEDx website, but the University of Central Oklahoma finally did uh, share an edited version of my TEDx talk from last March about technology fear therapy. <clears throat> but a lot of that focus is on, you know, use unique, uh, complex uh, passwords you know, with the password manager and turn on two-factor authentication. So I've been needing to go back and review uh, some of my things that I did as tech director for these applications that I'm filling out. <clears throat> and I think it was back in 2017 that we went ahead and started requiring all of our faculty to, you know, use two-factor authentication for their Google accounts. So if you're not doing that for your organization, you might, if you're not the person in charge, ask why you're not, because there are substantial security benefits and every single account Definitely that has anything to do with banking or your email, because your email is usually the key that sort of unlocks the kingdom of everything else you need to be protected with, with 2FA. Yep, absolutely. Um, uh, another article from PC Magazine talks about how there is a fake malware-laden Windows 11 installer rolling around. And I only mention this because... Um, uh, I, if you are someone that's so inclined to go look for free software on the internet that you should not be installing or aren't going directly to the source, and you can, by the way, download a Windows 11 installer directly from Microsoft. This has been a wonderful evolution of Microsoft strategy the last five or so years that that stuff isn't locked away anymore. You can go and get a uh, 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 Windows uh, installer directly from Microsoft, but this one um, uh, doesn't upgrade things, just installs a bunch of wild malware. So uh, be, let's be careful out there. Um, I believe the other two articles are yours, sir. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I've uh, mentioned this a few times, you know, if you read a lot of hacker stuff, um, maybe you get a bit cynical and <clears throat> a bit paranoid. Um, this was NPR on January 29th, and the headline is Russia could cyber attack Ukraine again and disrupt the entire world. I think I might have, I don't you know. Uh, this was a, this was an article after the last week show, or the show two weeks ago, um, but you know a lot of us are continuing to you know watch these headlines and what's going on. There's all these troops massed. Is, is something going to happen? I've, I read tonight that uh, um, what's believed to be Vladimir Putin's luxury yacht just pulled out of a German port so it could go into Russian waters, uh, possibly fearing you know repercussions if if there's a if there's an attack in the Ukraine and then there's there's um, sanctions and penalties, but you know, how do we prepare? I mean, the two factor authentication, the password stuff, those are, those are things. Um, other than that, you know, preparing for, uh, let's say an infrastructure attack, uh, or a cyber attack is probably just like preparing for any other kind of natural disaster with trying to have, you know, some food and water. But anyway, this is a, a sobering, you know, kind of thing. Russia has been in, I think, Belarus and in the Ukraine as well for multiple years, kind of maybe testing things and just anyway, using their flexing their cyber muscles, their offensive uh, cyber cyber uh, muscles. And one of the problems with this, and I think is this the article that talked about it? Um, this may not be the one. Um, when we had the release, I'm trying to think if it was Petya or what the name of it was. Sometimes when these things, when, when there is some kind of a, of an, of an attack, um, malware that's released, it, you know, ends up creating a lot of havoc all over the world and, and having a lot of ripple effects for, for companies and going far beyond, you know, the geopolitical, uh, focus that it supposedly had originally. So patch your stuff, folks, and, um, just do everything you can to try to make sure you're making yourself as, as small a target uh, as possible, whether you're talking about yourself personally or, or your organization. Um, and then there's an article from Dark Reading on February 7th that talks about phishing. Phishing simulation study shows why these attacks remain pervasive. It is not quite weekly, but almost that we're hearing something from our school tech department about another phishing attack and Many of these are, are focused spear attacks that are, you know, targeting 
our principals or, or what we call division directors and folks in the business office and the head of school and things like that. Um, and so this is a graph that shows um, uh, that, that human resources convinced more than one fifth of recipients, so more than 20 percent to click. And the categories here are CEO fraud. So like I was saying, mis, you know, misrepresenting your superintendent, your head of school. Uh, document sharing is a large way of now tricking people An internal HR mimic. So somebody saying, hey, we need you to, you know, resubmit your information for, you know, withholding or for some kind of of HR need medical, perhaps, and then a service issue notification. So we all need to be careful of the links that we click. And I don't know if this is for my geek of the week or not. I don't think it is. I was listening to a podcast about the Pegasus um you know uh, uh i think that is the it's the israeli group that that um has been responsible for selling this malware well basically spyware to um a lot of countries and it was also what was used to target Jamal Khashoggi i didn't know i mean maybe i'd read this before you actually don't have to click anything in order for somebody to put this thing on your phone um, so anyway, but for, for what we're talking about here with the phishing attacks, it is a link. And sometimes I remember about 2017 or 18, when we decided to start doing two factor, <clears throat> there was another tech director uh, from Texas who was sharing that they had received and were receiving these messages that look just like they're a Google app school, a Google sharing notification, but it was not. And you had to be really really savvy and careful to look at that and say, oh, I'm I'm mousing over the link. That's not going to a Google site. It's going to something else. This stuff is really, really tricky. So in general, I think unless it's unusual, unless you're absolutely expecting it and it's like something where you're doing a password verification or something like that, it's it's always better to go to the website in a new browser tab and log in rather than clicking the link. So phishing is alive and well, continuing to thrive. And we'll continue to see more of that in our inboxes in the weeks and months to come, sadly. Okay, well, uh, we have about 20 minutes left, so let's pull the Band-Aid off here and get to the tech correction. Uh, Maybe my favorite article from this week, uh, it was widely reported, but this came from a a blog called City AM. Um, Apparently, the good people at Meta, uh, owners of Facebook, Instagram, and other fine social media properties, I have decided that they're going to start threatening Europe because of, and, and there's a myriad of rules in, in Europe. Europe has, has regulated tech much more aggressively than the United States. But basically there is a, uh, uh, a rule that apparently is, is, is now being more aggressively enforced or it's proposed. But the idea is, is that European data needs to be located in Europe and not in international or U.S. based servers. And so Meta, um, got used to, uh, I think, being able to make threats like this, but said, well, you know, if you're going to force us to do these unreasonable rules, we might just have to pull Facebook out of Europe. And at a press conference, uh, (laughs) the new German uh, uh, economic minister, Robert Habeck, told reporters, you know, after I was hacked, I would have lived or I have lived without Facebook and Twitter for four years and life has been fantastic. And then uh, his French colleague, the French finance minister, Bruno uh, Le Maire uh, said, I can confirm that life would be good, very good without Facebook and we would all live very well without Facebook and game over. Um, and that's a really big change in tone because I, I do think that Facebook has been used to making threats like that, assuming that people uh, wouldn't push back uh, uh, on the notion that, um, you know, if they don't uh, uh, make changes and they're just not going to be available in that area, but people aren't having it anymore. And I think it, it remar- or marks a really significant shift. And then you take that along with last week's news that, uh, Facebook lost users for the first time in its history uh, during the fourth quarter of, of, of 2021. And then the Facebook stock, um, and, I, and I actually have a, a link in our show notes today to the current price, but um, um, over the last month, it's lost uh, effectively 30% of its value, which is the, the largest drop of, of any stock in, in real economic value in the history of the New York Stock Exchange. 
um, but uh, a massive amount of, 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 of wealth lost. I mean, it just, I, I think it goes to show you that the tech correction, which we've been estimating for six years now, right, that we've been talking about it in some way, shape, or form, going back really to the beginning of our podcast, um, it, it, you know, something is happening to suggest that it's it's it, it, that it, the correction is starting, uh, right? That it's something large, and the thing that this tells me that I'm I'm not really able to wrap my brain around entirely is that I, I don't think regulation is necessarily going to fix it because we talked about uh, at least the United States government struggled mightily to figure out regulations that make sense for technology. I think we were closer than we ever have been, but. Um, you know, just remember that a lot of senators can't explain to you what Facebook is or how it makes money. And I think that's problematic for creating uh, at least uh, congressionally based regulatory schemes. But the bottom line is, is that that kind of attitude that, you know, if you're going to whine about it, then just take your ball and go home, uh, Facebook. That's a huge shift, uh, I think, in, in the rhetoric, particularly from from someone as powerful as French and German economic ministers. What this reminds me of is the um, kerfluffle in Australia over advertising and journalism and, you know, the, the real threat that Google had of not being present. And I think the reliance that we all have on Google is is quite different. Um, I don't know. I mean, my life would would not be as rich. I'll say that without Facebook and the connections that I can make there. But, yeah, yeah. that was that was definitely an eye catching headline. and Probably not the response that the Facebook executives were planning for when they, you know, decided to take that, that tack and that approach. Yep. And I would also note too, that, I mean, I actually think I might be a little happier if I got rid of social media out of my life. Right. Like, but you make a really important point, Wes, that is, I've explained a couple of times in the past uh, or in, the, in, in past episodes of this podcast, I've taken a lot of comfort uh, in, in social media during the pandemic because I'm just not able to see people um, and, and talk with people as much as I did, um, you know, uh, 23 months ago. So uh, that's something that uh, um, I, I think is part of the balance here. And that makes the decrease in the number of active users um, all that much more stunning. Well, I want to talk about the Joe Rogan stuff, but let me I just put this article um, actually in and uh, I read this today. This is from The Verge on February the 9th. Everything you need to know about the uh, bill that could blow up the app store. And so when we talk about the tech correction, we talk about regulation, there are a variety of different proposals, uh, which have, have um, you know, been brought up by different <clears throat> senators and representatives. And so this um, is called the Open App Markets Act. And the subtitle here by A.D. Robertson in this article is the Open, Market Act, Open App Markets Act wants to remake mobile computing. Um, and it says that the Senate Judiciary Committee last week uh, passed that. And it's um, actually a smaller part of, of, of a larger set of um, bills. And not all these are, you know, clear in terms of the impact that they would have. But some of the big things that this one would do would be uh, to require that you could sideload apps and you can have a third party uh, app store. Um, and that, uh, you can't penalize, and this is targeting Google and Apple. You can't penalize a developer for offering prices on another app store. Um, you, uh, can't unreasonably preference your own apps. Uh, basically it's, it reminds of the lawsuit that we saw with the, um, oh, what's the Ep Is it Epic Games? Yeah. That was, that is the, the Fortnite, uh, creator. And um, it's interesting because you've got Democratic as well as Republican, conservative as well as liberal supporters for it. One of the most interesting things I thought in the article was the way this could actually be used perhaps to force app or uh, platforms to allow extremist content. For instance, Parler was removed uh, following the January 6th insurrection in the United States Capitol. Uh, by all platforms. It was removed by Google from the Play Store. It was removed by Apple. Uh, we've got, you know, different politicians. Ted Cruz has mentioned in the article who, you know, are really upset about that and they want to make sure, you know, try to have neutrality. But I'll just say that I think the the fact that Apple, for instance, can really 
you know, closely gatekeep content and keep some real offensive stuff out of there. And I'm not even talking politics here. I'm talking about just, you know, some, 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 some terrible content, some stuff you wouldn't allow for school. Let's just say, um, this could have a lot of, a lot of impacts, but this is the tech correction. And this is a specific proposal that is moving through the United States Senate, which, um, could, could change the app economy and, and the environment. Now, to be fair, you know, you've had the availability of, uh, Cedia and maybe some other third party apps, but you had to jailbreak your phone and that was breaking your contract and doing things that Apple said would void your warranty. And, you know, they really, really had a strong arm to try to prevent you from doing that, to dissuade you. And there was a very, very small number of folks that could do that. One of the reasons that's a good thing to dissuade people from doing is because the security protections on a, on a side loading app and a third party app store is it, not the same. But we've had articles also saying that, you know, Apple's not you know, having uh, security researchers and PhDs, you know, vet these these apps before they're um, authorized on the store. So it is a wild west, but um, we're seeing the march of regulation move forward. And this is a good article, I think, that summarizes some of the key elements of this particular piece of legislation, which is just one of several that are proposed now in the U.S. Congress. Okay, let's see here. Shall we you want to talk about Rog- Rogan and that stuff? Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. I, I have some TikTok things I want to talk about, that, but that might be better for next week, anyways. So, um, I guess you know, to start off with, uh, I, I this is the first time we've talked about this, right? Yeah, okay. we haven't talked about it yet. Yeah, so um, I, I, I'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast, you're aware of this news, but Joe Rogan, podcaster, a longtime podcaster, very popular podcaster, um, was independent. And then uh, uh, relocate under Spotify for, I think, like $100 million, and it included his back catalog. So it, it's a sizable amount of money to go uh, uh, to be an exclusive Spotify podcast. And we've talked about that component a couple of times because one of the things I don't like about this exclusive podcast movement is it means that, you know, you'd have to have five or six apps installed on your phone to be able to get to all the po- all the popular podcasts, which are starting to silo themselves up in in various networks, but, uh, Joe Rogan, um, uh, has on, uh, uh, tends to have a, a libertarian flair. Is that, is that a, a an appropriate piece? Um, uh, he's had anti-vaxxers, some far right political folks, uh, you know, people that have made Fauci mad because, you know, they're touting medications that aren't FDA approved right. and stuff like that. And so some music stars, uh, probably most notably Neil Young, um, because he's the first major one, have pulled their music off of Spotify. So in, pro- in protest, uh, in protest of of, uh, of the good folks at Spotify um, not uh, uh, doing anything about Joe Rogan. And Dr. Fryer, take the story from there. So yeah, Neil Young uh, gave Spotify a ultimatum: if you don't take Rogan off, then you have to take my music off, and Spotify didn't take him off. And so Neil Young's music is no longer available on Spotify. I I think it's good for musical artists to be drawing attention to this. Um, the third link that we have there is actually to a tweet. I subtitled this Spotify publishes content guidelines in response to Rogan kerfluffle. Uh, but this is a tweet um, which links to a Spotify or Spotify um, press release. And <clears throat> This is kind of surprising. So Spotify had not actually published their content guidelines before. And so as a result of this Rogan situation, um, they have now made public their content guidelines. And so they're going to plan to put warning labels on COVID content. Part of the, um, you know, controversy here has to do with, with COVID and vaccinations and medications. Um, and so this is from the, news release. This is Spotify's words. Based on the feedback over the last several weeks, it's become clear to me we have an obligation to do more to provide balance and access to widely accepted information for medical and scientific communities. These issues are complex. We've heard you, especially those from the medical and scientific communities are taking the following steps. They're publishing their quote, long-standing platform rules, which amazingly were secret. <laughs> like if you weren't on their internal team, you didn't know them. Uh, and so they've published that. 
Um, they're working to add a content advisory. This is something we've seen YouTube do. Um, I published some videos actually from Houston last week um, relating to conspiracies because we've been studying the moon landings, you know, and, and right there, you know, there's a Britannica link to, um, you know, things about the Apollo moon landings. Those, the, that is a playbook that uh, YouTube has been doing for a while. Um, and then they're directing listeners to a COVID-19 hub resource. You put the article, I think, Jason, in that says the Spotify Rogan saga highlights the distinction between publishers and platforms. And I think one of the things overall about this is it blurs lines, right? Because we have, I mean, you have to be moderating content in order to remain a platform today. That was one of the things that got the parlor CEO canned. Uh, you, you know, it, it cannot be a complete anything goes when people publish illegal content right now under Section 230 of the United States uh, law. You, you know, as a platform, you have to be demonstrating that you're trying to moderate that. You don't have to keep everything off your platform. because That's pretty much impossible as the way that things are set up today. But, you know, you have to be uh, censoring and monitoring. And so the question is, you know, what are your rules and how are they enforced um, and what voices do you silence and, and how do you respond? So you want to share anything else from that article about platform publishers? Well, and, and, you know, to, to take that even a, a step further, that as a platform, yes, you, you have to, uh, make those efforts to not, uh, fall out of line with expectations for platforms, but also Spotify would be more directly responsible because they're funding Mr. Rogan's podcast, right? And, um, you know, it, it, it's not totally unreasonable, I think, uh, for, uh, musical uh, uh, stars to say, I just don't want my stuff on a platform that happens to be funding things that they consider to be dangerous or disinformation. And I think that's that's where it starts to get rather interesting. And as we've mentioned uh, dozens of times um, on our show, you know, the same reason why Wes and I love the internet, right? Like it gives a voice to the powerless. It gives a platform to students to literally publish to the world. Uh, you know, that's that's the problem we're running into now is that there is just no um, uh, there's just no barrier for anyone. Um, it's it's it, it's it's relatively easy for people to put up. Um, actually, it's 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 stupidly easy for people to put up even polished media assets uh, saying whatever you like. And yes, you're 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 can sometimes be held responsible uh, for that. But in a world where. There's millions of, of, of hours of audio and video published you know, each and every day. There's just no um, there's just no way to, to truly uh, moderate all of that. And so we're going to continue to struggle um, until we figure out either a community based balance or a regulatory balance to try to figure out how we give people um, the power to to use their voice without giving microphones to dis and, and misinformation. And uh, it goes back to something that we've talked about a lot as classroom teachers. You absolutely 100% need to be uh, extremely proactive uh, in helping students understand, uh, you know, the differences between the two. I actually was talking to one of our children <clears throat> recently, and I'm wanting to, I've helped them, uh, some of them set up websites and think about their digital footprint. This is a conversation we need to be having with students. Uh, we don't, I definitely don't think we want to be forcing students to create a digital footprint. And I think we also just, you need to be careful what kinds of searches you ask kids to do, right? Because when they're logged into an account in the age of surveillance capitalism, these things become part of their opaque uh, breadcrumb trail that, you know, will lead to other recommended videos and other kinds of, of advertisements and content and things like that. But digital footprint is essential. Because, you know, it, there's a lot of us that are going to want to have a web presence and to be Googled and to be searched for. And the way that you proactively take control over that is that you do publish content, you do share things that you claim, you plant your flag. Uh, that may not be happening and maybe shouldn't be happening for a lot of kids in middle school. I had a student, a sixth grader today, asked me if it was okay to have a YouTube channel. And I said, well, I think, you know, it depends. You want to work with your parents. We have an eighth grader that has thousands of subscribers to her channel. And, um, you know, you know, her, her parents are really in the loop and involved in it. But anyway, this, there's a lot of issues here. And I think that 
it's it's messy and this highlights the messiness but it also highlights the responsibility that platforms have and i think that spotify is is being a bit slow to step up to some of those also we haven't mentioned this but some of the controversy of this isn't just around like uh, for for rogan uh covid and vaccinations it's also about racial slurs and you know the ways in which he's uh, used used uh some demeaning language in the past and but it's also about money, right? I mean, Rogan is pulling in tons and tons of money for Spotify. Uh, and so, as is often the case with these kind of things, it's not just about, I think, what the right thing to do is. It's also about a company that's looking at at maximizing eyeballs and profit and, you know, trying to balance things. Um, so it's something to continue to watch and see what will come next. I think it's a positive that Spotify has publicly shared their content guidelines. I'm a bit shocked that those weren't public because how do you know whether you're stepping over the line or not if you don't even know, you know, what the guideline is? So again, this could be a great catalyst for a conversation with students. Um, I think this whole idea of quote unquote censorship or moderation or, um, the other words that, that, that come to mind about needing to have a gatekeeper for information. Um, this is really important stuff for us to understand from a civics perspective in terms of what the government can do or can't do, what private companies can do or not do. And wouldn't it be great if we had legislators that were really informed about how the Internet works? Because we've got some pretty important re- legislation that's that's being debated and discussed right now uh, that could have both intended and unintended consequences. and. Yeah, it's going to I think we're going to see some legislation. What I what I haven't seen moving forward is some real good privacy uh, legislation move forward. And I don't think we're seeing that yet, but um, hopefully that's coming, too. All right. Well, uh, tech we're near the top of the hour here. Um, why don't we go ahead and push the TikTok stuff to next week? I've got some thoughts to share. About OK, so. sounds sounds good. Um, all right. Well, uh, do you want to go first with your geek of the week? Sure. I just have a quick one. Um, I got a, uh, like, a uh, some kind of deal somewhere, uh, a couple of years ago to get something called Crello, which is kind of a, uh, a alternative to, um, um, to, <laughs> My memory uh, is, is going. Adobe, Adobe, maybe like a Canva, maybe uh, not or? Adobe. Canva is the uh-huh. one, and I I'm a huge Canva fan. But um, and, and I I used it sometimes because I had this pro lifetime pro account. But I recently saw that it was picked up by Vista, the Vista Print people, which is actually one of my preferred uh, online print shops. Uh, they uh, it really easy to do great business cards and 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 other uh, quick turnaround print projects um, uh, online. But they picked up that and re branded it as Vista Create. And the basic version, which is very functional, is free, uh, not unlike Canva. Uh, so if you're looking for an alternative to Canva, or if you're just looking for different templates, because part of the problem with Canva success is that an awful lot of their templates uh, end up getting used a lot uh, uh, around, particularly social media, uh, it, you can get a free account at create.vista.com. It also feeds into their print system, too. So if you want to design a business card there, for example, it would be easy to do so. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to overshare, but I'll try to be quick. Um, so uh, Google has a great newsletter, and I just happened to see this today, uh, upcoming conference. It's going to be called Teach with Chrome, and it's a series that will start on February the 22nd. And so I'll be sharing that with our teachers, and it looks fantastic. Google really has done a great job with uh, their videos and professional development during the pandemic, and I think this will be uh, excellent as well. Um, I also want to share a Netflix documentary. I just actually watched this last night. It's called Coded Bias. I'm a part of a media literacy club, a media club that meets the uh, first what, Monday of every month. Um, you go to medialiteracy.westfire.com and get the link. Anyway, this is going to be the theme of the March meeting is this documentary. And <clears throat> when it comes to AI and some of the stuff we were talking about, this hour and a half coded bias documentary goes into some depth about how some of the researchers at MIT have discovered this really, really huge problem with AI technologies. And that is most of the training sets involve white males. And so when you have uh, people of color or females 
people who aren't just white males that are being analyzed. There's all kinds of errors. And yet these tools are, are being used to um, make, you know, lots of big decisions like should we arrest somebody or not? Um, so highly recommend that. And then the last thing is, it was also something I just learned yesterday. Um, I was able to attend a wonderful webinar by a group out of the state of Washington focused on media literacy. Um, this is a project that uh, Mike Caulfield, who's Holden on Twitter, has focused on, and it's called uh, Control F. <clears throat> and the initiative is focused on really lateral reading, which is you know not trying to use one of these old school checklists when you're trying to uh, verify web content and decide whether or not to believe it. Uh, you need to do the same thing that fact checkers do, and that does involve lateral reading. Um, but anyway, this is a Canadian initiative, so it's in French and English. It's called Control F, and you can find it at ctrl-f.ca, and you choose English or French, the one that you want. So my overshare is done. Dr. Knifer, where can folks find you when we're not here having a lovely conversation on a Wednesday night? Best place to find me is on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach, and yourself, sir. I am W. Fryer on Twitter, and I have uh, recently updated my website, westfryer.com, and you can go there and um, actually you can go to my milkshake website that's off of my Twitter. So anyway, there's lots of places, but we want to thank you for joining us. Thanks to Peggy George for joining us live in the chat room. Encourage everybody to go to our website, edtechsr.com, where you can find generally posted shortly after the, the show, sometimes two weeks later, but that's rare, <clears throat> all the show notes that we talk about uh, in, in the episode and the show. You can also find small compressed 32 kilobit mp3 audio versions of our shows as well as approximately 100 megabyte video versions but you can subscribe on youtube you always can view the show immediately afterwards on youtube there is no waiting for that and that is really nice uh, but follow us on twitter at edtechsr that is the best way to stay up to date when sometimes we do need to make a change so um, we do have a Substack, and that message will be going out in the morning, um, which will, which does include not only the links that we're able to talk about, but the ones that we can't. And you can always, you know, take a look at those at the website as well. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and share the EdTech Situation Room with somebody else in your sphere of influence. Let them know and share the learning. Good night. Good night.